You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everyone. I'm getting us started this week. Uh, When you think of winter, what comes to mind? Oh, my gosh. Snow? Yeah, snow, cold. Ice. Uh, lack of lack of sun. Shorter, shorter days. days. Yeah. Snow fleas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, what about I'm thinking of like possible topics? What for about the animal wise? Animal wise. Oh, you know, sometimes I guess uh hibernation. Yeah, hibernation, but I was thinking also uh, migration. migration. Like the uh the great we have if here in Minnesota during the winter, sometimes there's species that will come down into Minnesota. So like the great gray owls. Um, and some of the winter oh. finches, so that mm-hmm. definitely think about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad you all brought up uh, migration. Uh, oh, I want to talk welcome. about something. It's actually, oh, it's, <laughs> thanks. You played right into my card. Uh, this is actually timely since it's happening about when this episode is coming out. Okay. Uh, it's a very special migration that has actually gotten quite a bit of press, and I guarantee both of you know about this migration being naturalists we all have talked about it we've all like tried our way to help with this the monarch migration oh my gosh yeah i i'm this is yeah if people don't know why you would be talking about this on a podcast podcast called strange by nature uh they're they're gonna be surprised (laughs) it's It's, so weird it's It's so bizarre go for it and I think the worst part is there's so much about it that we still don't know. So I'm going to start that, start this whole topic off with there's a lot about this that we still don't understand. Okay. Um, we've talked about migration before on this podcast sure. uh, at various times, um, various methods that animals migrate. Uh, we've even talked a little bit about monarch butterflies when it came to mimicry and when it came to uh, metamorphosis. They were a really fun example. Sure. Um, overall, the butterflies themselves, uh, they're not super strange. Like, I wouldn't necessarily do just monarchs as a topic without talking about the migration that they do, which is a big part of it. Uh, they're a pretty typical butterfly. Uh, they prefer a specific plant. In this case, they prefer milkweed uh, to feed on when they're a little caterpillar, and that's the only thing that they will lay their eggs on. Uh, before going on to drink nectar from flowers as an adult. Um, Various kinds of flowers, not just milkweed. Not just milkweed. Um, Which, by the way, like milkweed is actually one of the things that help the monarch uh, be poisonous, which is why so many like birds and things don't necessarily eat uh, monarchs. Yeah, it makes them them Um, taste But we don't have time to talk about that. It makes them taste awful. Um which is all when they were caterpillars, which is really cool. Anyway, but we don't have time for that. Um, so a year for a monarch really, truly depends on the time in which they're born. So we're going to start with um, they are the first generation after the migration. Most monarchs generally, most monarchs uh, live for 
as an adult, live for two to six weeks. Okay? That is their lifespan. Okay. Uh, once they hatch, uh, once they um, go through metamorphosis, not hatch, uh, they live about two to six weeks. But every four to five generations, something just really cool happens. Now, what happens is those adults, every four to five generations, and this is all within a singular year, they go right. through about four to five generations between winters. Um, so basically, till the, by the end of the summer, they're kind of into that fourth or fifth generation. Right, that's been exactly. hanging out. And they do this so for a reason. Exactly. And they do this for a reason. It's to up their po- get their population numbers up and up and up. Um, so that way the migration when they all get down there is as high as a uh, high of a population as there can be to survive the winter. That's really um, interesting. I hadn't really happens, thought about it that way. It's very weird. Mm. Yeah. Um, so these adults, um, the limiting factor when it comes to adult monarch butterflies is um, reproductive status. Most monarchs, uh, adult butterflies, their primary objective is to mate, lay eggs, and then they're done. They can die. Um, but these adults, they've, they've done uh, their duty. Once they emerge from, yes, exactly. Once they emerge from uh, the chrysalis. These adults actually enter reproductive diapose, which means that they don't reproduce. Um, it's kind of putting a pause on all the reproductive urges and the mechanisms within the butterfly. Uh, and this is due to like the temperature and lighting changes that are around for the season. Um, so is it like nuts. a tantric thing where they're redirecting their inner resources to another thing? Yeah. <laughs> It is. Did not think we were going um, in that direction. Okay. Kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but once uh, they, yeah. <laughs> but what's cool is um, this generation of butterflies then begin a journey south where they can fly up to 100 miles a day. Um, flying down from in our side, there's two different populations of monarchs in the North America. There's the Eastern monarchs and then there's the Western monarchs. The Eastern monarchs, generally speaking, are like Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, Canada, and they fly 3,000 miles down to Mexico to roost and overwinter mm-hmm. in Mexico, right. which I mean fair, on these fir trees. And they clumped together on just this little we just found where they um i say just we within the last decade or so found where the monarchs have been roosting um and overwintering and they hang out on these furs and these this generation will live six to nine months that is it it blows my mind i mean the the six to nine months compared to two to four weeks is Hmm. Yeah. You know, in previous generations, has been going. You know what? <clears throat> Probably time to pack it up and uh, go ahead and die here. It's been a nice long life, and the, they're like, "No, mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna. I'm at the same age that you might. You know, my my parents were when they passed away. But I'm I'm gonna go fly three thousand miles instead. Yeah. Hold on. Like mm-hmm. that. 
the so other bizarre. thing that's crazy is oh it's so bizarre and not only that but these are the ones that begin the migration back north once they get to like texas or so they're the ones that they exit uh the reproductive diapos and they breed and they start laying eggs like in southern uh in the southern part of the united states and then those generations make their way further north okay hold on hold on it's not like their parents are around so wait the yeah the ones that fly down they spend the whole winter down there and those are the same ones that then start coming back they don't like is that what you're saying they don't like lay eggs down there and new ones hatch out these ones are making the whole journey and then also starting the journey back aren't they tired that's amazing (laughs) i would be so tired that's amazing but yeah, these are the ones that they uh, are able to, they overwinter in these fir trees um, in Mexico, in central Mexico. Right. So it's not just like one, like barely in Mexico. They are pretty far south in Mexico. And then in about March, they start beginning the journey north. Um, and while they are in Mexico, they don't, there's cool temperatures, there's water and some shelter, but they don't necessarily go around. There's not a lot of flowers because it's still winter. Um, so they are conserving their energy and then they are making their way north, which is why there's been a push for everyone to plant milkweed and such. So that way there are early flowers for monarchs to be able to feed upon on their way up and their way down. Um, but right, they will right. start laying their eggs as they mo- monarch and breed and once they pass on, though their children will start, um, will continue the journey from the southern United States and continue up even further through the United States up into Canada. This is several generations in the future, and then for another three to four generations after, it's pretty much their great 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 grandchildren who will then make the journey back down to Mexico. Which that's the strange, that's the strange, Which that's is, the strange bit. It's just mind blowing. Like if my, mm-hmm. you said great, 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 three greats. Yes. Three greats. So my great, great, and a great grand. grandparents did a mm-hmm. journey that I have no knowledge of because my grand, you know, my each generation dies before the next one's even like around Mm -hmm. so the two big questions are how do they know to get to that very same small spot in mexico that they're like great 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 grandparents overwintered at and then how do the ones that you know are born in texas know to come back to canada or manitoba like how do they know where they're going when that journey was last made like four generations ago and no one from that generation or the generation before that, before that, mm-hmm. before that is even alive. We don't know. To, it's so weird. It is one of those things that blows my It's blows so weird. Mind. We have no idea. Um, there's been some thought that it has something to do with like their genetics. Um, but yeah. we, don't, we don't know. It's absolutely crazy. Because we've been trying to figure it out. But like, like I said, we more or less recently figured out where in Mexico these butterflies go. And I'm not talking like a handful of butterflies. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of butterflies are all 
hanging out and overwintering in one spot in Mexico. Um, there are some uh, there are some populations on the other side of the Rocky Mountains um, that overwinter in a different spot in California. Right, right. Um, they don't apparently like mountains. Uh, I don't blame them. I suppose uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to fly over mountains either. <laughs> um, but they all will still overwinter in one specific spot in California and then migrate out. And those generations are slightly smaller. But for okay, the most sure. part, most of the butterflies in most of the monarch butterflies in the United States go down to Mexico. And it's just absolutely insane that one generation of butterflies just starts making its way down through uh, one generation just starts and makes a 3000 mile journey anywhere from 2500 mile to 3000 mile journey from like Canada all the way down to Mexico. And then they just hang out there for months trying to stay alive and then make their way back up just so they can breed and have their species continue on the next uh, season. It's absolutely crazy. And they're so little, like, I mean, for yeah. butterfly, they're fairly big, right, right. but like to make such a journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why in like the spring, if you see like a really beat up butterfly, <laughs> it's probably one that migrated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that way for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so everyone go appreciate your monarch butterflies. Go see if you can count them. One time I was driving and I counted like 60 once. Um, that's great migrate migrating south as I was driving north it was really cool um, mm. so make sure you appreciate the butterflies and plant the milkweed and other flowers to help them on their way south um, yeah but that's what I have endangered species today. now yeah they great, are thank you. Uh, I wasn't going to mention it but yeah they are a uh, endangered species they're they're pretty sensitive to climate change and habitat destruction but uh, yeah yeah. Plant milkweed. Milkweed. Uh, so we're going to take a break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey, everybody. It's Kirk. Uh, you know, this show is listener supported. So what you're hearing is content that was supported by the members of our Patreon group, the Society of Strange. You can support the show and join the society over at patreon.com slash strange by nature. Go check it out. See some of the benefits and help support a show you enjoy. All right. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about natural nuclear reactors. Yeah. And uh, yep. yeah, my topic for this week was kind of inspired by some of the stuff I was reading for that one. But I'm going to start off with a bit of an adventure story. So in February 1943, a small group of British trained Norwegian commandos uh, set out on a desperate mission toward the Vermork hydroelectric plant, which was on a gorge in southeastern Norway. Okay. And the country had been occupied by the Nazis since late, since uh, like mid-1940. Yep. And the commandos had parachuted secretly into the country and had been surviving uh, in a hut on a frozen windswept plateau since like October. Uh, so when it was time, they skied from this hut to Vermork, which was like 
I don't know, 50 miles away or something. In the middle of the night, they had to ford mm. an icy river and scale the steep cliffs to reach the power plant, which is, you know, it's on the cliffs above a right, gorge because right. that's where it's getting the power. Um, the bridge across the ravine was guarded. Mm. Uh, so that's why they went Go the down and way. up. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> they were able to break into the plant and lay explosive charges in a particular room. Now, this room contained a cascade of electrolysis chambers that drew on the enormous amounts of hydropower that were produced at the plant. And why did this exist? The purpose of the electrolysis was to produce heavy water for the Nazi atomic bomb right, effort. Right. So the commandos Great. successfully detonated the charges, destroyed all of the oh, electrolysis good. cascade, uh, and then had to ski 200 miles Jeez. across the border to neutral Sweden to escape in the middle of February, end of February. It was very cold. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> a, it's a, fa- it's a famous yeah. story. It's, it's pretty wild. It's a famous story. Um, At least for people I'm going to, I'm going to give a book stuff. recommendation yeah, at the end of the episode. <laughs> I figured you, you, at least Kirk, you probably knew this story. Being, um, being mostly Norwegian, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> you're interested in history and stuff like that, I know. Uh, mm. So what, what is heavy water and why did the Nazis want it? Right, yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's, you hear about well, it once in a while, but it's like, what, what is it? Yeah. Heavy water is also known as... Um, it's moderate water that's made with deuterium hydrogen, uh, which hydrogen is normally just a proton and electron. It's number one on the periodic right. table. Simplest you can get pretty much. But yes. Mm-hmm. So normal hydrogen is called proteum all sometimes, but deuterium that goes into making heavy water, it has an extra neutron. So it basically doubles its atomic weight because a neutron is about the same mass as a proton. And it's only, it's 0.0156% of all naturally occurring hydrogen atoms on Earth. There ain't much no, of it. pretty rare. No. Yeah, it was discovered in 1931 by uh, Harold Urey. And it has some, some weird properties. Uh, so heavy water was discovered in 1931. I'm not sure when deuterium was discovered. Gotcha. Ah, gotcha. okay. Yeah. Heavy water has some weird properties. It is 10.6% denser than regular water. Okay. That's, it, that in uh, of itself is kind it of weird, a, yeah. That's pretty, that's yeah, very I mean, weird. It's, it's almost like the it water It stems is from the greater heavy. mass of the hydrogen. <laughs> yes, it is literally heavy. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to get weirder. Okay. Uh, it has a melting point of 3.82 degrees centigrade instead of zero. And it has a boiling point of 101.4 degrees centigrade instead of okay, 100. A little different. A little different. I'm following. I'm here for it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Evidence is, is variable, but maybe it tastes a little different, like possibly sweeter or something. Huh. Not exactly clear on that evidence there. Um, I, I, I don't use heavy water heavy ice water, cube. So I can't help you there. No. It's not highly mm-hmm. recommended. Uh, okay. We'll get into that later. A heavy water ice cube will sink in a glass of ordinary water. That is cool. And a heavy, uh, <laughs> a heavy oh, water really ice cube dropped, dropped into ice cold water will not melt because the point is a little higher. This is funny. Yeah. I, if your water is at zero I degrees. I actually saw a video like last week 
of someone making an ice cube out of heavy water and putting it into a glass of water. And it did indeed sink. That is very bizarre timing that you'd bring that up. All right. Yeah, that is weird. Um, it doesn't have the normal blue color of water because heavy water does not absorb red, white, red light in the same way. Huh. There's, a, there's a difference in the molecular vibration harmonics oh. that shifts the absorption of light into the infrared. Yes, oh. yeah. uh, it, zip, it, it shifts the absorption mm. of light from the red into the infrared. Wow. <laughs> okay. So there you wow. go. Oh, wow. Okay. Sure. So yeah. it would just, I'm trying to picture that in my head, that would result in it just having more of a clearish look rather than a bluish look. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding. It's, it's more like pure, okay. a pure colorless clarity. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago when I talked about the Oklo natural nuclear reactors, I did mention some basics about how the first reactors were built uh, during World yeah. War II and the Manhattan Project. And... I don't know if you remember, but that first successful reactor, Chicago Pile 1, used extremely pure graphite as a moderator right. to, to slow down the neutrons. Before this innovation of using the very purified graphite, it was thought that heavy water was the only feasible moderator. And the Nazis were still operating under that assumption. Okay, so for moderator... Which really was one of the things... Just to make okay. sure we're all on the same page, the moderator was what was going to slow the electrons down, which would make it... Slow the neutrons, slow the neutrons down. down, which is going to make yeah. it more likely it. to have collisions, and then you're going to get a self-sustaining reaction, right? Okay. Exactly, yes. Um, so that's actually one of the reasons that the Nazi atomic bomb, bomb project was not successful, is that they were trying to use heavy mm. water instead of graphite, among other reasons, but I'm not going to go into that. Right. Um, so in order for their atomic bomb project to proceed, they thought they had to have a lot of heavy water. And the only place that was really being produced was this Vermorck plant in Norway. So that's, that's the background on my little uh, opening story. But getting into some biological yeah. stuff here, the human, body, the human body naturally contains the equivalent of about five grams of heavy water, which compared to the total amount of water in our body is... Not, not much, very much. You know, not, that's something. Um, yeah, but it's, no. it's kind of good because <laughs> heavy water is not something you want to be having a lot what, of in your what body. What happens? It, well, a lot of things. It can seriously disrupt circadian rhythms in animals that have been tested, such as fruit flies. Huh. Um, which is, yeah, a, they're looking okay. into it because, yeah. It, it gets into some really weird molecular level, sure, level sure. stuff, like cellular level. Mucking around in that machinery. Mechanisms. Um, there are enzymes yeah. that rely on specific hydrogen bond interactions. Right. And hydrogen bonds are stronger with deuterium than with regular hydrogen. So those stronger hydrogen bonds lead to disruptions in cell function. Because something else can't um, break For example... Yeah. So the mitotic spindle, which is the structure the cell forms when it's about to uh, divide okay. and reproduce, um, it interrupts the formation of that structure. Um, when plants are given only heavy water, <laughs> uh, they stop growing seeds and don't germinate because Not of great. that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There are some bacteria that can live in. 98% heavy water, experimentally, of course. 
Um, but it's usually mm-hmm. very bad for multicellular organisms. So uh, basically, if you're a multicellular organism, you don't want to have a large proportion of your intake be heavy water. But there are a few exceptions that are a little more robust. Okay. So um, switchgrass, uh, Panicum virginia, vir- virginum, yeah. blah. Let me try that again. Switchgrass, uh, Panicum virgatum, okay. is able to grow on 50% heavy water, deuterium Bizarre, oxide. Okay. Uh, there's okay. a plant called uh, Arabidopsis thaliana that can grow in 70% heavy water. Another plant, I'm, I'm not going to read these names. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are a couple more plants that can grow up to 90%. <laughs> we get the idea, right? So they've done experiments on mice, rats, and dogs with uh, 25% heavy water and that can sometimes cause irreversible sterility not so that's great. fun yeah uh given 50 percent heavy water for a week mammals will die it seems to be what ha- what's happening to them when that when that's done is it seems to be a similar mode to the cytotoxic poisoning that happens in chemotherapy or uh, similar oh, to acute okay. radiation syndrome wow. also hmm and it prevents okay. cell division, as I mentioned. Um, so the bone marrow fails, which leads to oh, bleeding and infections, right. yeah, and good. the intestinal barrier fails, oh. which leads to diarrhea. So it's nasty. Mm. Wow. And uh, when placed in 90% Sounds heavy water, unpleasant. yeah, it is very. When placed in 90% heavy water, various animals quickly die, such as fish and tadpoles. Um, some animals mm-hmm. do do better than others. So in 2020, some Brazilian scientists published their findings about the nematode worm. Uh, it's named Panagrolimus superbus. And this is uh, one of those remarkable ad- animals, uh, similar to the tardigrade that you talked about a few weeks okay. ago, Rachel, that can actually survive almost total desiccation. It was Kirk. Oh, Kirk. I'm sorry. It's fine. It's fine. It's it wasn't very memorable, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. Go on. <laughs> I'm, I'm notoriously bad at remembering all, who said what, not just on this podcast, just in my life. Um, so this is called <laughs> anhydrobiosis. It means life without water. And right. animals that are anhydrobiotic can survive severe drought conditions by letting their bodies be almost completely dried out and basically suspending metabolism for months or years. And it's like the sea monkeys we anyway, talked about. Anyway, these scientists... Yeah, like the sea monkeys. I do remember you, that you were the one who talked about the sea monkeys, Kirk. Um, these scientists dried out this nematode and then rehydrated it in 99.9% heavy water. Jeez. And it survived. Wow, that's hardcore. It survived. Yeah, and Yay. I think even reproduced. Um, the authors of the paper believe that it can tolerate the heavy water because um, the pores in the cell membrane that let water in. Right. Are normal are are little wider than for most other animals' cells, um, so they can accommodate the slightly bigger molecules <laughs> that the heavy water are. Life, that's what they uh, that's what they're hypothesizing anyway. Life uh, finds okay. a way. Yeah, it um, really does. I mean, that's not a condition that it would ever encounter in nature, but it is just a remarkable thing that it can do when put to the test by humans. Yeah, um, so that's that's Crazy. why you kind of don't want to get into drinking heavy well, water. Well, scratch that off so my list of things like a, to do in a, life, I guess. A wellness trend? Stay away oh, from gosh. that. I haven't heard about that actually happening, but it seems like the kind of thing, the kind of thing someone would be like, this is great for you. 
The yeah. latest detox. Um, yeah. Now, there are easier <laughs> ways of producing uh, heavy water than there used to be. So you don't have to have the enormous power. There, there are chemical ways of making it now, but uh, it's still used in some nuclear reactors. It, when you use heavy water as a moderator, it allows you to use natural uranium instead of enriched uranium. Oh, interesting. And you don't need a graphite moderator. Okay. Uh, yeah. And heavy water reactors are also more suitable for producing weapons-grade plutonium. So if you're looking to do Yay. that. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, that's just exactly what I wanted. Plutonium is one of those things <laughs> that we don't need to make ever. Right. No. Let's, let's not. not. Yeah, I drew on a couple main sources this week. Uh, one is a paper uh, called An Animal Able to Tolerate Deuterium Oxide in Chem Biochem from uh, October 30th, 2020. And if you want to read a really great book about the Norwegian commandos, I recommend The Winter Fortress by Neil Bascom. But there are many others. It's a well-told story. Cool, thank you. And retold, yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, we are going to have a break. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We're going to have a break, and when we come back from the break, Kirk will have something for us. Indeed, I will. Rachel, uh, you mentioned dragonflies last week, right? Yeah, I um, did. I love dragonflies. That was, They're so great. Yeah, they are indeed really cool. Uh, that was in the context of catching and eating hummingbirds, and I thought that was pretty amazing, mm -hmm. and I thought it was time to do a subject that I've had in my list for a while that also involves dragonflies. Ooh, Ooh. yay! Now, I want yeah. you to imagine you are watching a dragonfly. It's flying gracefully through the air. Or you might be along the shores of Lake Superior like Rachel or perhaps out west in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, the dragonfly you see at first glance sort of looks like every other darner you've ever seen. So now, I should probably stop and explain. Mm -hmm. Like, the mm -hmm. most co common... Uh, type of darner we see around where I live is the green darner. I think it's one of the most common darners in North America. Yeah. These are the really... It, yeah, it is. The, green and blue. Yeah, they're the really yeah. large green dragonflies you see around ponds. They're the big, like, three-inch long ones. Uh, they just look like like the classic big dragonfly. I think a lot of people think of when you say dragonfly. Turns out... Yeah. There's yeah. many other kinds of dragonflies besides the green darner. Um, I know actually one of the, the old, an old nature center I used to work at yes. was the only known location in the entire state of Minnesota where a type of darner called spatter dock darners have ever been located and shown to breed. <laughs> only place in the state. Ooh. So that's really cool. Um, wow. Really? Yeah, but there's, there's many... That is so many, cool. many types. Uh, well, also, as you know, people aren't looking everywhere, so there could be some other locations. Um, you know, there, there's still a species that we're trying mm -hmm. to learn more, more about. There's a lot of citizen science that goes into dragonflies, catching them, identifying which ones are in each location, mm -hmm. um, and even just observing them and figuring out where different ones breed and, and what their behaviors are like. So, um, they're mm -hmm. very cool, very Little cool to watch. Fun nerd moment is I, I. <laughs> Fun nerd moment as I, I am a part of the Dragonfly Society of Minnesota. There you are. So people like Rachel love to just watch <laughs> watch them and catch them dragonflies. Um, like I said, and, and as you would know, mm -hmm. Rachel, and many people also often know, there's there's many types of dragonflies out there and many different types of darners, like I was saying. The one you happen to see in this little vignette I'm, I'm painting in your mind is a sedge darner. Uh, so they look 
pretty much Ooh. like all the other darners. Uh, they have they're they're big. They got a long, okay. skinny abdomen, clear wings, and that abdomen is kind of splotched with like mm-hmm. black and blue, uh, kind of like the rest of the darners. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. They ha- and they also have uh, what something that kind of makes it a, a darner is on that um, uh, thorax. There's sort of these diagonal stripes along their sides, and in this right. case, they are uh, kind of like a, a I think kind of a greenish yellow on the sides. So here in Minnesota, they're really only found along the edge of Lake Superior, uh, but they do have a pretty interesting distribution. Uh, they're they're circumpolar, meaning they're found all the way around like the no- the northern parts of the northern hemisphere uh, but it's not necessarily that they can be found mm-hmm. everywhere they kind of have some habitat preferences but they can be found in numerous places uh like in north america i think they do come down kind of into like the montana area uh, they're found along lake superior like i mentioned uh, they're also in pretty much all the united kingdom all of scandinavia p- some parts of russia they're found in japan even on parts of the kamchatka peninsula so like they're they're found in mm-hmm. they're not found everywhere in northern hemisphere but they're found in lots of places so again yeah. i want you to imagine we're getting we're, we're getting to the, the good stuff here i want you to imagine you're watching this dragonfly right i'm having a great i time. know you are right it's flying along i'm loving it this is so suddenly great. it freezes in midair stops flapping its wings and it crashes to the ground where it remains motionless. You have just watched a dragonfly die while flying in (laughs) mid-flight. You're probably a little taken aback, right? It's like, what? Whoa. I mean, we know dragonflies die eventually, but that just like to just crash Right. right in the middle of flight seems be like mid-flight and then just stop. Do, yeah, pretty wild, right? Do not go gentle into that yeah, good night. Uh, yeah, just, you're living it, living large to the last <laughs> moment there. This seems pretty straightforward. I mean, you saw it cease movement. You saw it crash. And you can plainly see that it's not moving right where it fell. However, if mm-hmm. you are patient and you watch, it eventually, mysteriously, seems to come back to life and fly away. Is it what? like the opossum of the dragonfly it family? It kind of is, yeah. This behavior was seen by, uh, and I, I'm going to so try to get this cool. name correctly, uh, Rasim uh, Khalifa, uh, who was watching sedge darners in the Alps. And Khalifa was, is, a, is or was a biologist with the University of Zurich. And he actually observed this behavior and wrote about it in the journal Ecology in 2017. Now, I do need to admit that I have purposely obfuscated and failed to mention uh, you know, uh, perhaps an important part of the story. The dragonflies in question that were just uh-huh. sort of dropping dead uh, were not, they, they are faking their own deaths, but they're not just doing it like randomly. They're not just doing it for fun. There is much more going on here than, than would appear right. at first. The dragonflies that okay. feign death are only Ooh. the females. And they specifically do it as a strategy really? to avoid mating. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, so they basically oh, they, <laughs> they are faking their own death. Although deaths. if they were mallard ducks, it would do them no good at all. Well, that's yeah, true. In this <laughs> case, they are faking their own deaths to that's, avoid that's sex. Tr- that's true. Uh, this is like the ultimate case of like mm-hmm. ghosting in nature, I think. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, for some context here, uh, the females arrive first at ponds 
And then the males show up shortly thereafter. And when the males arrive, it's just like dragonflies flying everywhere, a flurry of, of flight, uh, and, and males and females will mate. But once they have mated, uh, at least in this particular species of the dragonfly, um, the females leave the scene to go lay eggs on their own. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's not done like with the male. Uh, so like the female gets the eggs fertilized and then she's going to go lay them by herself somewhere else. Yeah. And as you can imagine, though, when there's... Which just happened in some species. Yeah. When you can imagine, there's this huge like mob of all these males that are coming in that are just desperate to mate. And she's like, uh, I'm sorry, like I'm done. Right. Like, but, but the the males don't know Mm -hmm. that. So they're just desperate to mate. And so the female, female has no reason to mate again, as it can actually be fairly risky for no reward whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, The males are very aggressive and mating can be fatal uh, with females drowning or otherwise being accidentally killed. And so uh, the fascinating, fascinating Mm -hmm. strategy sedge darners have evolved, or at least the females have, is the ability to fake their own deaths to make the males leave them alone. And uh, Kalia's wow, research so showed that feigning death allowed the females to evade the males about 60% of the time. Now, oh, yeah, that's I so mean, good. It, that's, that's it decent. doesn't sound like it's like the highest number. It's just a little bit over half. But if you consider that 100% mm-hmm. of the non-feigning females were intercepted by additional males, you can see 60% start sounding like, Pretty good, especially if, it's pretty if good. it happens multiple times, right? You, you want to get out of there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing to point out about the study is that we're not sure if we do this everywhere across their range. As I pointed out, they have a very extensive range, and it's possible this behavior mm-hmm. is limited to the population that this guy was studying. So more research definitely needs to be done across their range to see, like, does this happen in Japan? Does this happen in Wyoming? Does it happen in Minnesota? Uh, because it's a very interesting behavior. Right. Uh, to have observed and i'm glad that you know he was out there checking out the dragonflies and now we know that they will feign their own death like mm-hmm. this which is pretty fascinating there's not i mean we, we maybe even, i don't know if so we talked cool. in the show about these some of the other animals that feign their death we pro- probably will if we haven't um it's a pretty it's a pretty rare thing in the animal kingdom to have animals that were feigned there yeah it doesn't happen and a usually lot. it's because of a predatory situation not because of a mating situation so uh, I thought that was just exactly. super cool. Right. And I wanted to share that little tidbit there. Uh, my sources this week were the National Geographic, oh. the Journal of Ecology, and of course, Wikipedia. Oh, so good. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, so if you ever see a dragonfly just drop out of the air, uh, you know, step back and, and see <laughs> what's what's really going on. Maybe there's something more happening. I absolutely will. Well, everyone, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.